Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. Fifty years ago, on a Sunday in late July, as the Tigers played a doubleheader at Tiger Stadium, the city of Detroit was on fire. Violence had broken out just a few miles away in the early hours of Sunday morning. And yet, even as smoke rose high enough to be seen from the upper deck of Tiger Stadium, most fans, players, and reporters had no idea what was happening, or that what was happening would send shockwaves through the city that would be felt for 50 years. Ken Coleman is a Detroit historian and author. He is one of the contributors to a book published this year by Wayne State University Press to mark the 50th anniversary of that fateful July. The book is called Detroit 1967, Origins, Impacts, Legacies. I talked with Ken about how to understand and what to call what happened 50 years ago in Detroit and how these events intersect with the history of the Tigers. Ken Coleman, thanks for joining me. Welcome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And first of all, congratulations to you and your co-authors for, I guess, multiple awards that this book has won, including a 2017 State History Award from the Historical Society of Michigan. Yeah, it's great. Um, it, it really is sort of a dream um, working with uh, a lot of folks who I've admired and been influenced by. So, so that's great, and it's also great that uh, you know, people are reading it and, and looking back uh, in order to look forward. So your essay in the book is called Rebellion, Revolution, or Riot, and it looks at this question of what to call the events of 1967, 50 years ago. What's at stake in what we call these events, whether we call it a riot, a revolution, or something else? You know, I think that um, in what I do in the piece, um, I write it um, without my own point of view. You know, I examine the landscape in terms of uh, how people viewed the the set of events uh, 50 years ago and how people view it today. I, I, I think that reasonable people can can disagree on whether it was a riot, uh, a rebellion, um, or, or a revolution. Um, I think what's at stake, uh, mainly for me, is we have to understand the the conditions that, that led to uh, what happened in July of 1967. And so what's at stake, I think, um, is that we, if we don't learn from the set of uh, conditions and issues that created July 67, I think we're destined to, to have them be repeated. And so I think that's what's at stake. And so just to be clear, the danger in using the word riot is that it suggests that the violence was somewhat random, it was just sort of a spasm of violence that erupted, and there's a risk in obscuring the deeper causes behind it? Absolutely. And um, what I do uh, in my essay is report out surveys of people who lived in the 12th Street and Claremont area, and they were very much concerned uh, at that time about police brutality, uh, they were very much concerned about economic conditions, uh, and so you know those are those were you know conditions that were that were present in the African American community for decades. And so I would caution people who would look at uh, July '67 as just you know a random set of events that even if they weren't planned, they were still a manifestation of larger problems. So this year I've been trying to catch myself, and I tend to refer to it, I've been looking for just a neutral term to grab onto, and so I talk about the events of 67 or the unrest of 1967, which is a real euphemism, because if unrest is just lack of rest, that doesn't quite uh, do justice to to what happened. I'm curious, have you been monitoring, you've been talking a lot about 1967 this year, have have you been trying to catch yourself or trying to vary or stick with a certain label Uh, for what you're saying? It's a great question. I, I... 
personally, I have written, I have, I've, in speaking engagements, um, you know, around this issue, um, I've referred to it as a rebellion. That's that's my personal point of view. I think I've evolved in that. I certainly believe that if I were talking about July '67, you know, two or three or five years ago, I probably would have referred to it as a riot. There are times when I may call it a civil disturbance or unrest, but in terms of those three terms, um, riot, rebellion, or revolution, I believe it was a rebellion. I believe it was a reaction to systemic challenges that that African Americans faced. And I think as we evolve as individuals, at least in my case, I look at those events differently than I did you know, like I said, two, three, or four years ago. Now, I should point out, I, w- I wasn't born. I was born later that year. I was born in December of 1967, so I did not live through it. But growing up in Detroit and having uh, both parents who grew up within a mile of the epicenter, we, I've you know, heard discussions from my earliest recollection <laughs> as a child about you know, what went on. And so while I didn't live through it, I, I feel like, it's been a part of my life and upbringing, and it's just we grow as individuals, and I still have people in my family that refer to it as a riot. But, you know, like I said, reasonable people can disagree. These underlying conditions, these underlying causes that you talk about were decades in the making, and yet city leaders assumed at the time that Detroit was a, quote, model city, and the thinking was it can't happen here. Why did leaders think that, and was that itself a form of white denial, or was that widely shared? I think it was, I think there were some leaders who offered, you know, statements like it can't happen here and, and we're, we're a model city. But when you go and do the research, you, you quickly find that even Mayor Kavanaugh knew it could happen. He directed his, the police department to guard against and defense against such an uprising, um, while his public statements were very to the contrary. He said all the right things. Um, said and wrote all the right things at the time. So I, I think that what, we're, what we have to do is go back and, and dig deeper and, and, and do more research. I've, I've spent a lot of time going through Mayor Kavanaugh's papers at Wayne State University, and, and it's very clear that he was very much concerned about what, you know, what could happen. Detroit could uh, have an uprising like Watts. Uh, and like Harlem, and like Cleveland, and like Newark a week before. I, I, think he, I think he understood that that could happen. So the beauty of this book is it gives a sweeping historical view, and at the same time it gives a, at times, minute-by-minute account of what happened on July 23, 1967. And I don't want to get too deep into the details, but I want to get some sense of the specifics of the raid at 12th and Claremont and what exactly happened. And my question is, was something bound to ignite events on the scale that they occurred and this happened to be it, or was there something specific about this raid that you think sparked what happened? Uh, It's a great question. Uh, my sense is it, you know, it probably, if it didn't happen, you know, uh, at that blind pig on July 23rd, 1967, it probably would have happened some other time. Um, you know, I believe that the uprising was, was bound to happen. The specifics, a group of African-American men um, who had been serving in the Vietnam conflict were home, and there was a celebration with family and friends because they were home uh, from the conflict, from the war. Our understanding is, is that the number of people who were in 
the blind pig, were were a lot more in number than the police normally found uh, in these type of establishments. After hours, uh, illegal, uh, alcohol-consumed parties um, that would go late into the night and early in the morning. The police quickly found that I think the number was about 80 or 90 people, and that was a larger group than they normally would see. By most accounts, people were orderly uh, in the party, in the blind pig, and so uh, it, you know, the, the events didn't jump off because they were necessarily uh, you know, willing to carry out upheaval. It, it mainly came from the people who were on the street at the time witnessing what was happening, the, the raid, the bust. Uh, that's where the spark. Uh, that's where the spark came from. And one thing I learned from this book that I confess I didn't know before. I just heard over and over a raid on a blind pig, but this club was actually something of a community center where drinks were served as part of the social events. And yeah, Absolutely. it wasn't licensed, but elsewhere police would look the other way when that happened. So was the yeah. role that this club played in the community part of uh, the sense of uh, anger that that ignited the backlash? could have been. Um, persons who were outside, the proprietor's son was very much agitated and very much angered by what was going on, you know, happening. As you point out, yes, in a very real sense, a community center, that, you know, younger people, younger African Americans in Detroit had been victims of police brutality, you know, for years and years and years. And um, I think the irony of these, um, you know, the the party being held for Vietnam veterans um, is is ironic. I think that the fact that it happened at a, you know, what at least went by day as a community center was very, uh, very ironic as well. All right, so this maps onto Tigers' history in numerous ways, and it's remarkable to me that the Tigers were playing a home doubleheader as all of this was unfolding. The raid was in the early hours of the 23rd. The Tigers, who were in the midst of a pennant race, had a doubleheader at home that afternoon. And this was going on a mile or two away, and yet there seems to be almost no awareness inside Tiger Stadium, with the exception of the press box, where the Tigers GM, Jim Campbell, explicitly tells reporters and broadcasters not to say a word about it. It's amazing that everyone in the stadium, or most people, were oblivious to it, and the ones who weren't uh, were told to be silent about it as this was unfolding. Yeah, the Mayor Kavanaugh, Mayor Jerome Kavanaugh, uh, upon hearing about what was going on at 12th Street and Claremont, uh, ordered his press people to um, encourage uh, local media not to report on what was going on, at least in the early hours. And so, you know, you have a couple different dynamics happening, I think contributed to uh, the sort of press blackout, if you will. One, it's, it's July, uh, and it's, a early, it's a late, late, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. What I know about uh, media resources and how they're managed, that's probably the slowest, <laughs> the slowest time on the calendar uh, in, in the week, very, very, very early Sunday morning. So I think, one, there probably weren't the same level of resources in newsrooms. What I mean by that is assignment editors, reporters, you know, you usually staff down during that period. It's also July. Uh, people are traveling. People are on vacation. In fact, that's one of the issues about the police coverage that you know a lot of uh, law enforcement folk were on vacation. Uh, they were up north in cottages or you know um, in, in other parts of, of the region. But yes, uh, so Kavanaugh encourages media not to report, and that helps create you know as you point out 
the situation where a lot of people who are going to that early uh, that early Sunday game, a doubleheader, did not necessarily know what, what was going on. You're right. Um, Jim Campbell tells Ray Lane and Ernie Harwell, you know, keep quiet, don't say anything. But Ray Lane, many years later, uh, pointed out that he could see the smoke and thought it was just maybe a big fire, fire where maybe tires are involved because he saw black smoke. And he, uh, Lane, um, really didn't think much of it. And as I understand, the Tigers really didn't know what was going on until after the first game uh, between the two games where, uh, according to Denny McClain, it was his recollection that, um, that Gates Brown uh, in the locker room informed teammates what was going on or at least gave people a sense of the sort of conditions and, and, and what likely could be you know, carried out. So those 35,000 fans or so who were at that twin bill uh, did not know probably until probably after the first game, to be sure. And the blackout inside the stadium was in part just not to cause a panic among yep. fans, understandably. I want to talk in a second about the history, the complicated and tortured history that the Tigers have when it comes to uh, connecting with African-American fans and African-American players. Sure. Given that history, I'm tempted to almost read into this sort of a metaphor that the Tigers were trying to sort of seal themselves off and remain willfully oblivious to what was happening in this community. That's probably overreading it a bit, but given the context, would you indulge my imagination on that? Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and um, I haven't really thought about it that way. But I mean, we certainly know that the Detroit Tigers were among the last two teams to integrate uh, racially um, to suit up players of color and African Americans in particular. The Tigers and the Red Sox um, hold that dubious distinction. And Ozzie Virgil doesn't play in a major league baseball game for the Detroit Tigers until, I think, 1958, 11 years after Jackie uh, Robinson uh, broke the color line for the, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So it was a, you know, almost, a, almost a generation, certainly a decade, more than a decade, after the first African-American plays in major league baseball, the Tigers finally suit up a person of color to play on their team. Now, while I haven't seen this, um, I haven't seen a direct quote from uh, Walter Briggs, the former owner of the Tigers. Uh, it's often pointed out in research that Mr. Briggs was very much uh, against uh, having African Americans on his team. And Briggs owned the team until I think 60 or 61 when, when John Fetzer and, and another group bought the Tigers. But during the 1950s, um, they were owned by uh, Walter Briggs, and he. While there were African Americans in the farm system, here, here's something that a lot of people don't know. I know you do. The infield great uh, base dealer Maury Wills was actually in the Tigers' farm system in the 1950s. I mean, imagine if Maury Wills would have ended up playing for the Detroit Tigers, you know, in in 1958-59 or 60. You know, the, the team might have might have might have had a championship earlier than in the 60s and then the 1968. But there were. Uh, the Tigers were slow to come around uh, in that regard. And, and the first black American to be on the roster was actually a very aged uh, Larry Doby, who had broke the color line in the American League several years before. We had Larry Doby for about, about two months, I believe, at the very end of his career. The, the, the Tigers were very slow to, to bring African Americans on their team. And at that point, that was seen as sort of a token gesture to try to placate yep. critics and African American fans. Absolutely. 
So in the 60s, then you actually get real African-American stars emerging on the team. Obviously, we're going to talk about Willie Horton in a second and what he did in, Mm -hmm. in July 1967. But my question is, the scars of what happened in the 50s, of the Tigers' resistance, the resistance to integration, we can't underestimate the lasting impact, the scars that that left. My question is, when African-American stars emerged in the 60s for the Tigers, obviously some African-American fans embraced them and came to Tiger Stadium, but was there still reluctance and uh, apprehensiveness among those fans to embrace the Tigers because of the decades of history there? Oh, sure. Uh, I talk to African Americans who uh, today uh, who grew up in the 1950s, who uh, were kids in the 40s and the 50s, and, and I know Detroiters um, who who still don't root for the Tigers. I mean, they grew up rooting for teams like the Cleveland Indians because the Cleveland Indians had Larry Doby, or they rooted for the Brooklyn Dodgers, or you know they they rooted for other teams um, because the Tigers did not suit up African Americans uh, uh, during those years. I think there's there, there's some real uh, intense scars, and so when guys like Jake Wood, you know, come onto the team, they, they, I mean, I think there was certainly a set of uh, reading old Michigan Chronicles, the largest African American weekly in the state. Reading those papers during those years, there was a lot of resentment toward toward the Tigers, even after they, um, you know, started to put people of color on the team. It took some time for some African Americans to come around. So this is the context for Willie Horton's response. Now, he grew up in the area where these events, the uprising, the riots, the rebellion unfolded near 12th and Claremont. He went to Northwestern High School. What was his response after the doubleheader was over? Well, he immediately goes onto the scene. And my recollection is that he went in in uniform. Yeah, you pointed out, Northwestern High School, Willie grew up, you know, in that community. That was a strong middle. People people forget. Twelve and Claremont was a strong middle class community. You know, a lot of uh, auto workers and government employees, school teachers. I mean, that was a that was a community where African Americans, for one of the first times uh, in the city's history, could actually go buy a home. You know, buy a home with a detached garage uh, and a, you know green grass in the front and in the backyard, and not in a tenement, multi level uh, dwelling on the Lower East Side. So there was a lot of pride about that about uh people's homes and their in the neighborhoods there and, and Willie uh Willie Horton felt that you know the Tigers signed him as a young uh young uh, lad I think it was in 1961 and he was probably no more than 19 or 20 years old the gentleman who uh negotiated Willie Willie Horton's $50,000 contract was Judge Damon Keith and Judge Damon Keith grew up in that neighborhood you know so there were there was a lot of pride there Willie goes on to the scene uh, there are other notables there, like John Conyers, uh, who had recently been elected uh, two years before I had been elected to Congress. But but those those gentlemen tried to calm things down, and 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 really, they were attacked or, or and heckled because by that time things had really got to a, combust, a combustible state, and there was widespread looting and and, and burning by by that time. But Willie does go on the scene, and um, you know. At the time, even, you know, we're talking about the Tigers' reluctance to bring on African-American players. You know, people forget. You know, I, I think Willie Horton, Warren, uh, and Gates Brown, Earl Warren and Gates Brown were the only, I think, African-Americans of note on the team in 67 and 68. So they were, they had, sort of had the weight on their shoulders in terms of what was going on on 12 and Claremont. 
Another tiger who was drawn into the events that happened in the area was Mickey Lolich. He was a member of the National Guard, got pressed into duty, I believe, that evening. And so that night, he's walking the streets in riot gear. Uh, It's just a reminder that 50 years ago, professional athletes, at least some, didn't have the luxury of being removed from these events. They were immersed in them. Absolutely. Lolich, I've seen photos of Lolich in U.S., I mean, in uh, Michigan National Guard fatigues. The team finishes the doubleheader against the Yankees, but then the ho- they had a continuing homestand where the Baltimore Orioles were to come in. The Major League Baseball and the Tigers, uh, and obviously the Orioles, uh, would, had to have agreed. They agreed to take the series to Baltimore, away from Detroit. But uh, Lola just separated from the team, uh, as you point out. And he goes into National Guard service, and the team goes on to Baltimore. Uh, I guess that Monday. If they, I don't know if they played Monday, if they were off Monday and playing Tuesday, but but they played that series uh, in Baltimore while Mickey Lolich was uh, in a very surreal state. <laughs> you know, part of the uh, the response to what was going on. I was really struck by a comment in this book made elsewhere about the celebration of the 1968 World Championship. And we're going to hear a lot next year during the 50th anniversary of that championship about how the 68 team brought healing to Detroit. And a lot of it is going to be overstated, at least by a degree. Um, But this comment was made, I forget in which chapter, that there was some looting, there was some violence after the 1968 title. And I was really surprised, maybe I should have been, that I believe there were a couple shooting deaths as part of those events. This comment drew a contrast that because those were mostly white participants who were engaged in those acts, that there was a yeah. contrast in how it was treated because of the racial imbalance. Yeah, I mean, it, we, some of us who sort of study and follow these uh, reactions to sports wins often make the joke that when, when white folks uh, <laughs> celebrate after a sports team title victory, it's, it's celebration. When, when African Americans do it, it's, it's rioting and looting. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I mean, it still can be a violent situation. My recollection is that there was some of that going on uh, in Detroit um, after 1968, but it didn't compare to what you know, we saw in 84. You, know, you actually saw you know, burning cars and sort of mischief going on around Michigan and Trumbull. But, but, but my recollection is that there was some of that. I do think that there's a double standard oftentimes in how media reacts to these things, uh, depending on who's involved. Yeah, it did get really ugly in 1984, and those were mostly white perpetrators, and there was yeah. a lot of negative coverage. I don't know, not to deny the larger imbalance, but there the media seemed to paint it pretty negatively. Yeah, I think some of that has to do with the sort of socioeconomic nature of sporting events. I mean, certainly you could go to Michigan and Trumbull and sit in the bleachers for a buck fifty or whatever tickets went for at that time uh, in a regular season game, but you know the World Series, the, those you know ticket prices aren't nearly uh, astronomical like they are today. But even then, I think one of the reasons why you didn't see more African Americans around Michigan and Trumbull in 1984 was just you know, lots of people couldn't afford that ticket. And I think that uh, disproportionately white people could. And I think that's why you saw, you know, the images that we saw from television and, and newspapers certainly indicated that these were, this was largely white, uh, largely a white crowd um, that was uh, that was kind of going crazy after, uh, after the Tiger win. I, I think that's probably, so I think there's a socioeconomic sort of factor that, that comes into play there. You've talked about the ongoing disconnect between many African-American fans and the Tigers or Major League Baseball. A couple more questions on that. First, 
it's noticeable that there's been such a decline in African-American uh, participation when it comes to players in Major League Baseball, not just the Tigers, but league-wide. Sure. And that has a cascading impact on the African-American fan base. What can baseball do to better encourage African-American participation when it comes to players at the Major League level and fans who would be invested in following them? That's a great question. I think Major League Baseball can do more. I, I don't I certainly don't want to be overly critical. I mean, I can remember in the 80s, and now excuse me, in the 90s, you know, reporting on stories uh, for the Michigan Chronicle with with Major League Baseball and efforts to uh, rebuild playgrounds in, in, in their city, um, you know, communities where African Americans are, are the majority. I, mean, I remember going to a presser, you know, 10, 12 years ago with Willie Horton there where uh, Major League Baseball had contributed some funds to refurbish the diamond, the baseball diamond, at Northwestern High School where, where Willie uh, attended. Uh, you know, I think that in the larger sense, I think a, ma- a Major League Baseball placed some priority in trying to get inner-city kids to play ball, but what probably they spent more resources in, in the Caribbean, you know, the Dominican Republic and in, in, in South America, to get, you know, more Latino kids involved. That's, that really has been... You know, you've seen a decline in Africa. As you point out, you've seen a decline in African Americans playing the game. But, but obviously, people of Latino descent are is where I think a lot of Major League Baseball's priority is. And I think that I think African Americans in general have turned away from the game. Kids don't play ball like I did. Um, you know, the Police Athletic League in Detroit was very robust as late as the seventies and eighties when I was you know ten, twelve, fourteen years old, and we all played baseball. Now. Patton Park on the southwest side, uh, where a, you know a large green space that used to have three or four diamonds, maybe five or six baseball diamonds, they've been converted to soccer fields. And I think that you know PAL, uh, the Police Athletic League in Detroit, has turned its attention to games like soccer. So some of it is about taste and, um, and interest, and some of it I think is in the case of Major League Baseball, probably not emphasizing and spending as many resources in, in inner cities as they are doing in the Latin countries. It does seem symbolically fitting that the Detroit PAL is developing a baseball field and facility at Michigan and Trumbull now at the site of Tiger yeah, Stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although at the same time, they they said, hey, this is not going to be a baseball-only facility. There will be football yep. and, yes, soccer played here. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it is a great point. I, I can tell you, though, Again, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I don't even think, well, uh, football. Uh, I was going to say it was only baseball, but Pal put a lot of resources into baseball in those years, and they've, they've really pulled away from that in soccer. My, my nine-year-old has played soccer the last two, three years uh, in, the, in the Police Athletic League in Detroit. My other question about the disconnect between the African-American community and the Tigers today is an irony that I don't know if a lot of people realize. I certainly didn't the first several times I went to Comerica Park. And that is a couple of historic neighborhoods that you've written about in a different book, uh, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, uh, overlapped at least somewhat with the sites of both Comerica Park and Ford Field. And so we hear the narrative about how these stadiums brought this area back. And when you take a recent view, they did. But when you go back... Before that, before the highways shattered these neighborhoods, uh, these yeah. neighborhoods were very vibrant. What would you like fans to know today about what used to be in that location? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I've, I've had this criticism of, of the Illich family, not only in the, in the case of Comerica Park uh, and the Ford family, in the, in, in the case of uh, those two stadia being on the land where Paradise Valley sat. I, I think that, on one hand, I give the Tigers credit. 
Negro League weekend now has been very successful over the years. Um, they've been doing it. And so I think to some extent they have made efforts to you know, recognize the, the past, the team, the organization's actions and inactions. But I think there's even more that they could do. I mean, there's certainly the Negro League weekend is a salute to Negro League players. It's not necessarily a salute to neighborhoods, African-American neighborhoods in Detroit that no longer exist. I mean, I'd love to see them either in that Negro League weekend or some other, maybe a setting onto itself, celebrate and educate people about Paradise Valley, the, the cultural business district of Detroit of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and, and Black Bottom, the neighboring residential community just, just south of Gratiot. I, I think that there are lots of people that don't know those stories. They don't know, they know Joe Lewis, but they don't know that he was an entrepreneur, you know, that he owned uh, a restaurant and a bowling alley, pretty much right where home plate is <laughs> at Comerica Park. Um, they don't know that um, Richard Austin, the first African-American Secretary of State, his accounting office um, was right there on, on Brush. Um, they don't know that African-Americans owned hotels next door on either side of the DA, the Detroit Athletic Club. They don't know these stories. Um, and so I, I think what I've argued over the years is that I think that the Illich family um, has the resources to make that happen, and I think they should. I, I think, for example, it's a shame, uh, actually it's a doggone shame, that the Illich family or Olympia Entertainment you know, chose to have somebody like Kid Rock open Little Caesars Arena. Yeah. Uh, when there are people like Aretha Franklin who stated that they are interested in opening up restaurants, you know, why isn't Aretha Franklin's a restaurant there? <laughs> and so I, I think that it's a real source, uh, real sore spot for me. And I'm glad you mentioned it because um, I, I think that we're missing a great opportunity here to share, you know, the city's history. And um, you know, I'd like to see that happen. Finally, Ken, this 50th anniversary year of the July 1967 events, you've been writing about this question, many have been writing about this question, could it happen again? And there's so many ways to measure so much progress. Diversity on the police force is one. And at the same time, it's striking just how urgent uh, so many of the same social issues, social concerns, social crises are recurring today. When you think about police brutality, you think about economic marginalization, is it striking to you to look back 50 years later and say some of these same root issues are still urgent concerns for us? Yeah, it's not only striking, um, it's very peculiar. And uh, if you look at poverty rates in the African-American community in the city proper, they are higher in a lot of neighborhoods than they were 50 years ago. Imagine that, the greatest country on earth. If, if you went back in time and said to Jerry Kavanaugh and said to uh, you know, African-American leaders like Judge Damon Keith, if you said 50 years from now, Detroit will have some of the highest, will have higher levels of poverty than they do today, they wouldn't believe it. That's, that's why you know, I've written that, yeah, the civil unrest could very much happen again. Um, a lot of the conditions are there. You know, po- extreme poverty in some uh, communities, uh, police brutality whether it's being carried out by whites or blacks or people of another persuasion, it is still an issue. The city of Detroit's police department has only in recent years come out of a, a consent agreement with the federal government because of uh, how it has treated prisoners, um, how it is uh, policed communities. Um, and so the seeds are definitely there for something like Detroit 1967 to happen again. And I'll add just another part the gentrification that's going on in downtown and in midtown. There is some resentment, 
from African Americans um, in Detroit, uh, whether they live on the outer outskirts of the city or those who have been displaced by you know developments in Brush Park or in, in downtown and Midtown. I think there's a there some level of resentment to billionaires like the Illages uh, and Dan Gilbert, who are basically building you know, <laughs> playpens, uh, extravagant playpens for people who have the means, while uh, there are lots of people hanging on for dear life uh, in, in the outskirts of the city. Well, that's why this anniversary year isn't just a historical commemoration. It's a new reckoning with uh, questions of social equity that uh, face us with new urgency now. Ken Coleman, thank you for your time, and thank you for telling these stories of Detroit history. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Ken Coleman is a Detroit historian and contributor to Detroit 1967, Origins, Impacts, Legacies, which recently won a state history award from the Historical Society of Michigan. Coleman is also the author of Million Dollars Worth of Nerve, 21 People Who Helped to Power Black Bottom, Paradise Valley, and Detroit's East Side, and On This Day, African American Life in Detroit. Follow him on Twitter at HistoryLivesDET to find out what happened on this day in Detroit history. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now and leave us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners. You can also find us on Google Play and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. Podcast.